In this episode, we're answering some of your questions. We'll be covering how to price property in a rapidly rising market, risks with the ripple effect, what to do if you suspect your investment property isn't that great, entry-level price for A-grade assets in Sydney and how to avoid overcapitalizing on a renovation. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report, which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Our first question is from Sally and I love it when they start off with love the podcast. Thank you, Sally. Uh, she said that she's sought to apply some of the advice. However, the reality seems to be that even if you have achieved a bit of dough, the Sydney market is unachievable, particularly if you have, for whatever reasons, kids, divorce, ignorance, ignored fundamental necessities. So let's have an episode about numbers. One, what can you get for $2 million and where? Now that is a lot of money, but I have to say in Sydney, it's not so much. Um, Two, what will $2 million buy you? Three, what is the definition of an A-grade property? We'll get into that. Four, can B, C or D-grade property be a good home? Five, do properties move up in grade? Oh dear, that was more than a question. Happy to banter about it. Well, we will banter about it quite sh- in in quickly because we do have, uh, I think, four other questions. Yeah. So let's go through the first of all. Can you get in Sydney at two million dollars and where? Oh, absolutely, you can. I mean, I understand where Sally's coming from here, and thanks for the uh, saying you love the podcast, Sally. We appreciate you listening, but. Um, yeah, it doesn't get you as much as you'd think, you know, and especially if you're trying to buy what we call a quality asset, which we'll talk about, um, you're starting to look quite far from the city if you want to get into, say, the housing market. I mean, for $2 million, you probably could be looking at, you know, I'd probably, if it was me and I had that today, I'd probably be looking somewhere along the northern train line. You'd be going pretty close to up around Hornsby, I, I suggest. Um, and you could be looking down in the Shire. I think you could definitely get something, you know, around the two million mark down there if you want to get into the housing market. Um, I think you'd struggle everywhere else. I mean, you'd struggle lower North Shore. You would struggle in the beaches. You'd struggle um, eastern suburbs, obviously. Um, even, you know, maybe the the, top, the right at the bottom of the eastern suburbs. You know, the botanies and things like that. But I'd, I'd probably stay away from those areas personally. Um, You'd really probably struggle in the inner west, Veronica. Right for two million bucks, you'd be you'd be tight. Um, oh, I know it's terrible, yeah. but uh, if you want a three better, two million is pretty much not going to cut it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could potentially get a two bed, but you probably have to, you know, that you could renovate to a three bed. But it's those type of properties are probably still pretty tight. Yeah, they are. Yeah. and I guess the unit market. Uh, in the inner areas is becoming more and more expensive as well. As you can guess, if you've got $2 million to spend, which is a lot of money, and you can't get a three-bedroom home for your family, that has led to uh, three-bedroom apartments, huge amount of demand, and so those prices have been going up. And we've seen those going over $2 million too now in the inner areas where there's not a lot of oversupply, obviously, and where, you know, the lifestyle um, attraction is very high. Um, But... You know, it does come down to, yes, houses further out, 
and you are going a lot further out. You're talking about near Hornsby or the Shire. That yeah. That is getting quite a fair way from the city. But the good thing is they are established areas and yeah. for housing, that is, and uh, there's a train line. So yeah. that is the the convenience and accessibility. Um, and that's what I would stay close to. I'd stay close to the train line to the north and the, the schools, the private schools basically, um, or if it was down to the, towards the Shire, probably um, the train lines and getting access to the water and things like that would be the things I'd be thinking of. Now, Sally's also asked about the definition of an A-grade property. Now, I actually, there's a whole episode you can listen to. We'll put it in the show notes, which is actually your home first home buyer yep. guide podcast where we've just talked about what is an A, B, C-grade property. So I'm not going to labour that point now, but an A-grade property fundamentally is a property that will fly out the door even in a flat market. Yep. That is the sort of property that has all the characteristics that make it really in demand. So it's the location specific because what's A-grade in one area will be different in an, to another area, yeah. But so it's it's really something that has all the ingredients. It doesn't have to be the most expensive price bracket in an area. It really just have that 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 really nice combination of the ingredients that buyers want and will fight for and are scarce because it's it's like the perfectly formed property. Can a B, C, D grade be a good home? Well, I, I don't know about C and D, but definitely B can. And lots of home. Owners, so owner occupiers, not investors here, will make compromises on some aspects of a home in order to be in the area they really want to be in and get the type of property that, in terms of the accommodation that they really want. So, absolutely. And even in my business, some of our clients do buy B grade. They buy it with yeah. their eyes wide open and yeah. they understand the trade offs and all the rest of it. But, and sometimes you can buy a property that is not a now. But it's because of certain it needs renovating, or it yep. needs to be opened up to bring in light, or or there, there's certain things that you can do to it to improve it. You know the ugly duckling. So some properties can be upgraded and converted to an A grade if certain things are done to them. So if they've been neglected, for instance, or, or this, you know, a number, even just a good landscaping can can take some ugly ducklings into yep. this one territory. Yeah, I, I, I think that um, in your A grade is really something that is going to be very limited compromises and everyone in that suburb would prefer to be in that street or that side of the street and it, um, there's nothing really bringing it down. You know, the neighbours are all good, the light's good. The, um, that's really what an A grade is. I mean, I think that a C grade or, or a D grade to go up to an A or a B, you know, something has to change and, yes, you can't really change. You can change the property per se. Uh, but if it's location, if it's on a main road or it's, a, you know, a south-facing and it's on a really poor block or it's really noisy with a flight path or, you know, whatever it is, if those things can't change, then, you know, no matter what money you throw on the property, it's just always going to be stuck in a, uh, a property that people aren't willing to make those compromises on. So, um, yeah, the, the lower you go down the, and also the risk goes up because, you know, you're probably paying a lot of money for those A, B, Cs and even Ds in the last 12 months, just how hot the market is. But you can already see that the Cs and Ds aren't selling as well, you know, and if there is a bit mm. of a rise of interest rates and people are getting more picky on taking on a lot of debt, then that's where the risk goes up for the lower grades. Um, harder to sell, longer to sell. Um, and if you do need to sell it, you're going to likely take a lower price. So, um, just be aware if you lose the liquidity of a property, the lower your grade goes down. And A grade, you can always sell it. You know, the reality is yep. um, even when the market's slow, you call up an agent and there's already four or five people who really want to upgrade into that suburb and into that street. Um, and you should still be able to negotiate yourself a pretty good deal. 
Um, so that's that's the good test. Exactly right. One thing I would just pick up, pick up there, you said about the flight path. Now, in Sydney, it's a big issue in a lot of suburbs, including where I live, right? Yeah. Um, the thing, the difference with the flight path, spoken by somebody like Chris who lives nowhere near it, um, he said... When you choose to live in an area where there's a flight path, every house is affected. Yeah. So, therefore, it's it, you're choosing a suburb and you're making – that's your trade-off. It doesn't make the entire suburb B-grade or houses within that suburb B-grade or C-grade or whatever. It's, it's that there will be some people who will rule out the entire suburb, but as long as there's mm. enough people who want to live there for other reasons, they will take that trade-off. Mm. Um, whereas, say, a main road – uh, that is something that only impacts a small percentage of properties in a given suburb. Yeah. So with the flight noise, it's just one thing I'd say because there are certain mm. areas of Sydney where it does impact Why the entire that? suburb. <laughs> yeah, and I've got to pick you up on that because yeah. I've made that decision to live under the flight path. But anyway, yeah. all right, so moving on to the question from Matt. Hey, guys, had a question regarding a non-investment grade property. 18 months ago, I bought an investment property 22Ks north of Brisbane in Strathpine through a buyer's agent. And actually, I've been hearing a lot of these sort of stories, yeah. actually. Purchased for 440K and it would probably now sell between 550 to 575. So that's not bad growth in 18 months. But mm. of course, you've got to bear in mind everything's grown massively in that period of time. Yeah. Um, it's an established property with a good land to asset ratio and it's roughly 5K's negative gear. After listening to you and he's added in Megan Wells, Stuart Weems. <laughs> And others, I realise it doesn't have the long-term drivers. The market is still hot and I would like to continue to hold for another 12, 24 months. My question, should I and others in a similar boat sell in the short term and invest my money elsewhere, for example, into another asset class because I can't afford an investment-grade property? Um, so that's the question. Um, All right, Matt, right. without being too about you and per se in your life, we don't really know too much about, you know, you're single, you're married, kids, want to buy a house, why can't you buy another property, you're going to get another job, et cetera, all these other questions I'd want to know. But just purely down to this property and um, its performance, um, we've had a few clients that have come to us with these type of properties. You know, they've gone to uh, buyer's agents and yet yeah, they have bought in the outskirts of, um, you know, Brisbane, for example, and because of low interest rates and because of huge demand from first home buyers, which is starting to wane, um, you've seen that they've been pushed to the outer suburbs because the suburbs that they prefer have all gone up too much, i.e. suburbs closer to Brisbane. And they've gone and investors have now started to go out to the to the outskirts of Brisbane. So personally, I would um yeah, I'd be taking advantage of that opportunity. Now, how much money are you really making? You bought it for 440. Let's assume you didn't get any stamp duty savings or um, I'd, I'd personally, in these type of properties, you probably, so it's got a really good land to asset ratio, so the house is probably a bit run down. Um, I'd probably say, you know, your transaction costs are 10%, 5% to buy, 3% to sell, or 2 3% to sell, plus 2 3% on just fixing things that are broken on the property. So you're probably about 40 to 45 grand of costs, let's call it. So that takes you up to 485. Um, and if you sell it for, say, I don't know, 550 to 570, um, you're probably going to make, let's just call it, I don't know, let's say 80 grand, right? Then you've got to pay capital gains tax on that. You've had it for 18 months, so you've got to probably pay about another 20. Um, so you're probably only going to make about 60 grand in actual profit, um, which is still good money because you probably put down around 60 grand. So you probably doubled your money in 18 months, um, which is still a really good return. I'd be a little bit careful um, taking advantage of the market 
being hot and try to get off right at the peak of the the mountain um you know the problem is things can turn pretty quickly if the rba for example lift interest rates sooner than you think um if we you know confidence more listings come on there's you're not the only investor in these areas a lot of buyers agents go to these outer areas and a lot of investors will be thinking the same as you um and so i just be a little bit thing uh trying to sort of take, sell it at the opti- most optimal time you want to try to get out just before everyone else is getting out when supply is still low so um but yeah if you can make that type of money and walk away and that's been driven by affordability low rates i would be um banking it and then putting it into a better asset so i think um i've had a lot of questions come across my path uh in recent times of similar uh similar sort of yeah. top it's similar flavor where whether or not they've used a buyer's agent that people have done their research effectively after they've bought to try to work out whether they made a good decision or not and then this sort of dawned on them that oh maybe Maybe I haven't made a great decision, but maybe the market's done me a favour and maybe I should cut and run. Now, the decision, you know, these are some of the things that I would recommend you consider before selling, okay? So one is the calibre of the asset. Now, it sounds like you've answered that. It might be a B minus, maybe, um, maybe a B. I think, too, there's a bit of a... bit of a misnomer around um, land to asset ratio. You know, property investment advisors will talk about, you know, you've got to get land is where the value is and you've got to get, you know, a good block of land and it can be a heap of shit on there, but as long as you've got land. Well, the land needs to be in an area where land is valuable and also you have to have potential with that land. It's no good just having a little house on a big block of land unless you actually have a plan for it. Like, that, were you going to subdivide it? Were you going to renovate it and extend it? What, what were you going to do with that land? Like, it's all well and good to get it, but and that's often not explained. And I, you know, these some of these property plans I see, and this 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 theory is in there, but there's no what next. Mm. It's all well and good to have the land. So what are you going to do with it? Yeah. So because um, you've got to realise that that opportunity there, you know, if that's the reason you bought something with with land. So the first thing, asset calibre. Secondly, market movement. So you do need to be very mindful that, like Chris said, things can turn very quickly. And so if you make that decision, make it and act on it and try to act on it before everyone else decides to act on it. So I think that's the other thing that Chris uh, mentioned there. Um, Thirdly, what is your long-term plan and does this fit in with your long-term plan? Because at the end of the day, if, yes, like I mentioned earlier, you you had plans to improve the property and there's a good case to do that and it makes sense to hold on to it to do that then why bail just because you've had a you know sharp uplift in value right now the big picture plan for you is to do more with it you know so your long-term plans and goals are very important um your life stage like chris said he'd want to ask a lot of questions and absolutely if you are in your earlier years of um you know your investing journey and you've got a long runway to maximize the runway that you've got you want to leverage in into good assets they're going to grow better rather than have a pretty mediocre growth in the long term and you've got to sort of think that this last grow you know period of growth that we've had is not normal you know and it's great to experience it and and then make your decision you know and then obviously what your short-term options are for that money Uh, chris just ran through you know basically what you might end up with in in your hand what else can you do with that you know Mm. and and there are always other things to invest in you don't actually have to invest in property um and that is one of the things that unfortunately a lot of these sort of um buyers i don't know if you used to buy a local buyer's agent i suspect not i suspect you sort of had one of those more investment houses that 
sort of decides on an area and then goes and finds property in those areas. Um, they can actually help lift prices in those areas while they're buying there and they often don't have a local specialist on the ground. They sort of fly in, fly out, or they have a more of a regional specialist that, that doesn't have that intimate local knowledge. So, um, yeah, so your short-term options in terms of that's another thing to think about in terms of what you would do next um, rather than having to dive into the property market. Look, you know, get some other advice and see what other options there are out for you. All right, third question from Claire. Are you able to do a podcast episode on how to estimate property value in a hot market? We're trying to buy at the moment and finding it really hard to work out the value of properties looking at past sales data as the market's moving so fast. This means that we keep on getting out because we're being too conservative in our offers. We are also worried about overpaying if the property market cools. This is such a good question. Hopefully it's not my sister, actually, because uh, she's clear and she's <laughs> been having the same problems. Um, but um, yeah, it's so hard, right? I mean, the, the person who pays the most gets the property, right? So, mm. you know, if you always are trying to value it and get it for a good price, then this is what's going to happen. You know, you, you, most likely you're probably going to have to get it more than what everyone else thinks it's worth and ahead of the market. The challenge is how far ahead of the market are you and um, how much do you, are you protected if the market does cool off? Now, if the market cools off and you did end up buying it at the most um, expensive time, well, that's an issue if you're looking to sell. It's looking if you are looking to do an upgrade in three or four years' time, um, if you go through a marriage breakdown, um, you know, all, all these other reasons why if you potentially have to sell and you paid a top dollar and the market cools. Look, if you end up paying a top dollar and you get a quality asset, um, and you end up living there for 15, 20 years, um, then there's probably going to be other cycles in the future, right? So um, personally, I would focus on, you know, just trying to get a good understanding of its value um, and then doing your best to try to get it as close to that and not try to get it for that price. I mean, I would just be trying to get it into the market and get a quality asset and focusing and be willing to go a little bit more than I would want to if i know that it's the best street if i know it's going to give me lots of happiness if i'm really confident it's going to be the right property for for us as a family if i know i can add more value to it if i know these sort of things um would would give me the confidence to you know you know be uncomfortable i would always say you, you're not gonna you want to be a hundred percent comfortable with the property um and you know try to have as minimal uh reservations when you buy it um you might not be a hundred percent you know certain but you know I, I wouldn't want to be um completely unhappy with the price you know you want to be a little bit unhappy with the price but you're never going to get a perfect property at the perfect price so you're always going to feel like you overpay uh, i think to get quality assets it's funny you say that i mean uh, yeah you got clients with 10 million dollars they still got to make compromises <laughs> yeah you got clients with one million dollars same thing it's just to different degrees um there is a process that uh, I encourage everybody to go through when they are pricing a property and, in fact, create a little free course. So it's um, I'll put the link in the show notes. It's homebuyeracademy forward slash free course. Um, and and that is to teach you the comparative sales process, you know, to, to look yeah. at comparative sales and how to, how to assess them to the, against the property that you're looking at buying. And there is a process to that. When we put together that course, the market certainly, it was actually pretty flat or maybe even falling when we actually originally recorded that course and so what we need to do is upgrade it with a module for how to index for market movement because that's what we do in our business and 
And that is that we, if a property sold a month ago, we've got to think, well, what's, how's the market moved since then to now or two months or three months or whatever, which is what you're alluding to there. And we do, I actually use core logic figures now. I used to try to do it suburb by suburb, but medians are notoriously unreliable. If you've listened to enough of our podcasts, you'll know that. Um, I ended up, I end up working out that the actual using the core logic data on a monthly basis for the whole of Sydney is as an index figure is actually more reliable and more robust for us than any other method that I've tried over the years. So that's what we do. And I literally break it down so there's a monthly index figure for units, dwellings and houses. I use the dwellings ones for townhouses. I use the unit ones for units and I use the houses one for houses. And that's how I factor up past sales to sort of today equivalent today's price but that's not where it stops right then i have to say right well i then also track what because we are looking at typically a grade assets they are going to be more competitive they always yeah. are you yeah. know than bcds even though c's are competitive in a hot market they're not as competitive as an a all right so there's a premium to be paid and over and above where the research might indicate and that's painful but we have to quantify that premium and so in my business i actually do track that i track how we price properties and i track the sale price whether we buy it or whether somebody else buys it now this is quite scientific compared to what the average buyer is going to do but this sort of goes to what chris is saying you sort of have to put in a buffer that you're prepared to live with so you know, I would say when it's really hot and we're going to auction and it's an absolute A-grade property and it absolutely suits our clients' needs really well and it's, they're scarce and they're very hard to come by, I would encourage them to consider putting 10% yeah. on top of the upper level of the range in which we've scientifically worked out it should be, in inverted commas, worth, right? Yeah. Because that's also buying in a couple of months, you know, a few months growth. That's actually prepaying for, say, three months growth in, in last year's terms um, because we know it's scarce, we know how well it suits their needs. So you do have to go through this process of assessing the asset for its own merits, regardless of your needs, and also how well it suits your needs. Yeah. And that's the bit that people throw out the window in a hot market. That's when they lose all pickiness and they get super fussy or they just throw, they, they pay whatever for anything because they just, they've given up. They've got decision fatigue. So there is a place and a time to what you might want to call it overpay and some buyers agents i tell you will encourage you just to part with your money because that yes you have to be the highest highest bidder to win but the fact is you've got to be very strategic and which yeah. ones you choose to be the highest bidder on yeah. and that's the important thing yeah because if you, you know let's say the property is two million dollars and you go uh you think it's the upper land that's worth two million dollars and you go pay 2.2 and you you really know you overpaid and then you get in the property and you're like, look, it's not really the greatest property. Um, mm. I don't actually enjoy living here. Um, it's not really suited to us anyway because of what we need. So we're going to have to potentially do an upgrade or a big reno. And you're just throwing money on money, right? You know, to sell, stamp duty, selling costs. The good property you really want's gone up. Then you're out of the market. And so that's where it's so important to make sure it's the right fit for you. You're going to love the property. You're going to give you that real long runway. Um, and if it's a quality asset, then... You know, if you do lose the, when you buy in a hot market, you know, you've got to accept that, you know, you are um, losing a lot of the returns. You know, if you did buy in the cold market a couple of years before it, then you would have bought it for a much cheaper price, but you can't change it. You can't say, oh, I'll wait three <laughs> years later. So you just, and nobody was buying back then. That's exactly. the whole thing. And so you just got <laughs> to say, well, wants look, to. Uh, uh, we, we unfortunately, we're just time, we're going to have to take this one on the chin. 
hopefully maybe you're selling your property in the same market. So maybe you, but when you're upgrading, it's never going to be as much as what you, you know, you're going to be, what you're buying has gone up. But, you know, when you're buying in a hot market, yeah, you do want to try to sell it in another hot market one day, you know. And so if you, for example, overpay when you purchase, if you know are fortunate enough to sell it in another hot market, then you can be fortunate that someone else will overpay for the quality asset. You know, you think you'll sell it one day for three million, but then you go to auction and you end up getting 3.35 or something, right? Um, and so that's one of the benefits of quality assets, that if you do overpay and it does go super hot and it's super scarce, um, as if you do are fortunate to sell in a hot market in the future, you know, you may get the same thing might happen to you where you get a lot more than you think it's worth. But the longer, and I always say you got to look at properties long-term view anyway, and even if you own home, you ideally want to see it for 10 years. Yeah. That bit that you overpay at the beginning, that really does dissipate yeah. over a decade. And, you know, it, even in a slow market, your property is one of the ones, if it is A grade, which will have, one or two or three buyers on it versus no buyers, you know. So you'll do better just by virtue of that even if you don't sell in a hot market. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Yeah. Now, sure. our fourth question is from Charlie. Hi, Veronica and Chris, big fan of your podcast. Thank you very much, Charlie. Thank you for your awesome content and we appreciate your appreciation. Um, I have a question around the ripple effect. During the COVID boom, we saw massive increases in premium markets such as blue chip suburbs across our major capital cities. Based on your experience of past booms, will those premium markets plateau at some point and other markets catch up in the years to come? <sighs> It's a really good question. The ripple effect, mm. I think, was driven down to us working nine to five in the city and um, that, you know, if you couldn't afford this suburb, you went the next suburb because of the you didn't want to go four suburbs because that was an extra 15 minutes on the train twice a day. You know what I mean? And so I feel like the ripple effect, which is um, the next suburb's worth a little bit less than the suburb closer to it because it's just a little bit further away from the city. As long as they're similar lifestyle suburbs, um, you know, that was driven a lot by the buyers prioritising time saving so they could get back to their families sooner. And that's why that I think COVID changed everything. I think that was it's it's the best thing for, you know, giving options and, and you know, taking a little bit of pressure out of, of capital cities. Now, not everyone can um, will go to working from home full time. But, you know, a big portion will have that option. And, um, you know, I do think that the it's not going to be a typical ripple effect. I think it's going to go a bit further north and south and um, maybe it'll even be into the country and, and et cetera. So I do think it's going to shift a little bit. I think the quality assets in each suburb will be the ones that do really well, the best streets and the best properties within those suburbs, um, rather than just everything in that suburb going up because it's closer to the city. I think it's a real dangerous strategy. So I, I think this coming out of this boom, I think the growth's been different. You've seen four-bedroom houses perform much better than three-bedroom houses, for mm. example. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I don't think it's going to be the same as past booms. And, you know, I, I'm pretty confident that some type of remote work's going to stay um, just because how strong the employment market is, you know. 
Uh, unemployment's at all-time lows. Um, it's likely to continue to keep on getting lower. So the employers uh, are desperate for people and employees have got the upper hand um, and they're going to want flexibility. And so they're going to really embed um, the need for remote work. I think one of the things to think about when it comes to premium areas and the growth is that there's no actual finish line. Yeah. It's not like, you know, okay, I'm not talking about Balmain quite often because that's where my office is, but it's also a premium suburb. And it's not like, well, Balmain reaches, you know, the million-dollar threshold, you know, <laughs> first, and that's it, stops, and everything else has got to catch up to it. You know, it, it will continue growing. There'll be ebbs and flows and all the rest of it. You know, if you look at Balmain as an example, why would somebody move to Roselle rather than Balmain, right? So they're moving further away from the ferry, further away from the water and parks and whatever. Now, Roselle's got its own lifestyle now. You know, people actually specifically want to go to Roselle versus Balmain some ca- yeah. in some cases. And so that's that's an example of a permanent change that started as a ripple effect. It started that Balmain mm. was where everyone wanted to be. They only went to ba- Roselle if they couldn't afford to Balmain to be in Balmain. When the market turned down a bit, they thought, but great, can for Balmain now leave Roselle. But as time goes on, Roselle gets to be very desirable in its own right. And then people start looking next suburb, oh, Leichhardt. And so then Roselle's... Closer to the, chair, the you know the top of the pie and and Leichhardt becomes the ripple and so it does Leichhardt have the the elements to have permanent growth and and to keep that level of um that level of appeal and you know I could look at I could actually pull that apart a bit to be quite honest about Leichhardt Leichhardt is still gentrifying mm. Leichhardt has its Norton Street is is a white elephant like Leichhardt has loads of potential but yep. it has failed to re- you know reach its potential could be like some kids report card at school they're talking too much in class um you know so so that's a good example of the ripple effect and it ebbs and flows and I've owned property in Leichhardt I know what what happens there that becomes desirable because it's everything else is priced there everybody's priced out of everything else and then all of a sudden markets move and they go bugger that i don't want to be in like i'd rather be in roselle you know mm. and so then they turn back so to be permanent to have a permanent effect uh, or increase in in terms of prices in an area that's experienced a ripple effect you know it has to be properly gentri- gentrified and it has to have local characteristics that are equally desirable to the areas that people forewent or for you know that they foregone is that even a word foregone um, in order to go there. Yeah. The the thing is though that those real premium suburbs yeah. and the real next ones down that never quite bridge that gap mm. they never quite have the elements yeah. in play to be a top performer. That gap over time actually gets bigger and yeah. bigger. It might be slow and imperceptible, but, you know, yeah. Kent talks about it all the time. He talks about yeah. those suburbs along the coast and, the, and then the ones on the inland on the other side of a highway. There's always a highway and the ones close on the right side of the highway close to the coast, the gap of those property prices, the growth, it, it basically they get to a point where they almost decouple. Yeah. And so there's a level of uh, relativity to a point and then they sort of aren't relative anymore you know it just you can't bridge that gap so i guess yeah it's something to watch for it's it's watching for when you when you're making those compromises and going for the next best suburb does that next best suburb run the risk of always being the bridesmaid Mm. or can it be a bride in its own right one day yeah i think you're right exactly it's it's the 
premium suburbs are driven by a lifestyle benefit that the suburbs next to it may not have that benefit. It might be mm. views or access to water. Um, it might just be the topography. The train line versus um, a horrible you bus know, route. the main street and the, the local community and the vibe. You sort of walk around the walks, you know, the access to public transport, you know, et cetera. And so it could be next door, but... You know, it's never going to have that same appeal. And, you know, there's a lot of postcode snobs out there as well that want to be in yep. certain <laughs> suburbs that, um, you know, will pay a premium to have that address to say they live in that suburb. And um, and I do think that in these suburbs, there are also suburbs that generally don't change. There are little pockets within those suburbs that everyone really wants to upgrade into and um, would love to be in those streets. And they very rarely transact. They're tightly held. Um, and those properties just keep on going. The reality is that um, when money, uh, people have got a certain amount to spend, they go and look at real estate and domain and everything else, and there's only a handful of properties, and they just go and look at those real lifestyle pockets that they really want to be in. Um, and so, yeah, it'd be very dangerous sort of trying to invest in the bridesmaid suburb if it's not a genuine bridesmaid um, or equal. Um, yep. And don't listen to real estate agents blurb because um, <laughs> <laughs> they're always trying to give you social proof to move into a new area and why it's just as good, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you know, I remember when I first started selling real estate in Balmain and, and you know, back then before GPS was in people's cars, we would advertise a Roselle property if it was on the Balmain side. So there's a peninsula mm. and there's Roselle properties that are on the peninsula with Balmain and there's those that are yeah. off the peninsula. And we used to call um, the Roselle property is Balmain Peninsula. Mm. It was a bit of a joke. And, you know, but buyers would turn up and there's like no Balmain Peninsula in the jet, in the Gregory's. Like, you know, they, they could <laughs> sometimes yeah. they weren't from the area, they couldn't actually find the street, you yeah. know. Yeah. And, you know, that, that practice stopped as people start, I think, you know, the, the bullshit. Yeah, the bullshit ometer started going off, but um, but that's how we used to sell them because there was more value in being on the Balmain side, mm. you know, than being on the other side, and and vendors would be very uppity about you know advertising it with Roselle, but it's on the Balmain Peninsula, you know, it's this sort of yeah. strange snobbery that sort of came about. Yeah, but, you the know, if you markets have done so much in the last two years, you know, you think that the twos to gone to three, well, the threes have gone to five, and the fives have gone to nine, like. The top mm. end has just gone absolutely ballistic because low credit, cheap credit has also pumped up asset prices and business owners and um, and equity portfolios and et cetera. Um, and certain industries had massive bonuses, et cetera. So um, the premium end has had a lot of cash, can get access to a lot of cash really cheaply and has gone and spent it and pushed up prices. And so, um yeah, the, you can really see that's played out. It's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next few years to that part of the market. You know, equity portfolios have already had a bit of a, you know, especially in the tech sector in the last couple of months, it's been a bit, um, I guess, a bit volatile. Um, the Aussie market's down a little bit. You know, crypto's down. Um, you know, interest rates are likely to go up. There's a bit of fear around that inflation around the world, et cetera. So, um, yeah, that area, that part of the market does get very volatile. But longer term, I would say that it would still decouple from the rest of the market. I think just on one last point on this, when you're in one of those premium markets and you want to upgrade, you're already in that market. 
Mm. And so, you know, if you're going to buy a $5 million house, for instance, which just sounds ridiculous, you know, you're not a first home buyer. You're probably selling a $3 million house and borrowing the rest or, you, you know, it, it's you're not coming in from scratch. Whereas if you go and you get into the market in an affordable area and you think that's all right because it's all the same and, you know, rising tide lifts all ships and all the rest of it. And in your affordable area, you achieve some growth, but not at the same rate. You also got less equity or less skin in the game. So just exponentially, your gain is not going to be as high as those who've actually bought um, at a higher price point in the first place in a more expensive area. So if your plan is to upgrade, you know, th- these are really important cons- concepts to really wrap your head around because you you want to understand that you need to be playing in the same pool effectively if you want to continue to um, take yep. a part in that market. And that's where I talk about that gap getting wider as well because it can lock people out. You know, so a lot of people would start off thinking, oh, well, I'm in the property market. That's all right. But if you're not in it, it with the same strength, um, then you will get left behind, you know, yep. or you will have less options, different options, if that's what you aspire to. Absolutely. Okay. Our last question is um, from Mark. Uh, thank you for the time that you and your team put into these podcasts. We appreciate that. Once again, find some insightful and relevant. We do appreciate that. Um, in the episode, this is going back a bit, Suburb Trends, July 2021, um, and this is actually pointed to me. Veronica, you mentioned analysis that you did between 2004, 2010 of properties that underperformed or overperformed in Roselle. Now, would that still be current today? Would you share some of the characteristics of properties that overperform, please? For context, I'm currently in the midst of planning a renovation of a growing family. I need to understand what I can control through the renovation process to make sure it's future-proof. Um, understand can't change some things, like if you have a lack of parking, you can't fix that. Um, but, you know, you can't make the land bigger. <laughs> but, you know, what can you do within the constraints of that? So <laughs> let me go back to... That research that I mentioned, I did um, when I can't remember when I did the research, but what I did, I wanted to look at it's, it's when I first dawned on me that not at the rising tide doesn't lift all ships. You know, that is a phrase that is used by a lot of property people, and it's actually bullshit, right? Rising tide might lift all ships, but properties are not ships in a pool of water, right? <laughs> it just doesn't. Uh, behave the same way, right? So when the market moves up, some properties will do better than others. And when it goes down, some people do, some properties do worse than others, right? I wanted to understand um, the differences and, and sort of dig into it. So I wanted to see if it's true for starters, because with property, you know, it's not like shares where you can actually track certain parcels might sell at one time and then sell again. And you can track with some degree of certainty. Individual property, that one, you know, the one down the street might have sold after 10 years and it was purchased in 2003 then it sold in 2013 the next one would have been purchased in 2017 and then it was sold in 2022 you know they're they're different periods of ownership they've had renovations in between so it's really quite difficult to pinpoint exact price movements so in this period between 2004 2010 it was a very static period in the market and so I had sort of a more time to play with in in that I could look at sort of almost like the whole year of each year to say well which properties are traded in 2004 and then traded again in 2011 without being improved without being renovated and I found quite a number 
And so I could look at what had the median house price done in that time, which of those properties had done better than the median and which had done worse, and then look into each individual property to work out what was it, what characteristics did certain properties have that others didn't. When I looked at fundamentally, there's certain things that are like, so I broke it down into, I can't remember exactly how many characteristics, there's a number of characteristics that we look for, like natural light, orientation, the street, um, the type of architectural style of the home, is that in keeping with, with um, others in the area? What's the block like? Is it a level is a level block of land, is it an appropriate size? So is it a similar size to what is appropriate for there or is it better or worse, smaller or bigger? Is it is the position of the house on the block of land um, maximising the size of the land or is it a lot of wasted space? You know, um, what's the privacy like? What's the natural light look like? All of these things, um, the floor plan, how functional is it? Uh, is it imbalanced? Does it flow well? So some of these things can be changed, but some can't. And really going through all these different characteristics, it became really clear, and this is, leads to that, or, you know, really my understanding of what makes an A-grade property and how to assess that. Mm. Um, it became really clear the sorts of things that really hold a property back are the things that you can't be fixed. And so, so that was just seminal research for me. I've built, you know, a lot of case studies since then on this and testing the theory. And I've even got like a predictive a capital growth predictive indicator score that we score every property that we um, we evaluate in my business based on the learning from this this and other research. But this is that's what this um, this showed me. Um, yeah, it was quite fascinating. Um, you could even have, I remember one particular property or well, two houses on the same street, both weatherboard, um, one of them three-bedroom, two-bathroom with one car space and the other one two-bedroom, one-bathroom, no car space, but the the one with the less amount of bathrooms, less amount of bedrooms and less amount of car spaces actually did better mm. over time and that's because of things like it wasn't triangular like the other house is trying, you like, can't yeah. fix it. People don't like it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Level block, you know, um, level shape block, you know, yeah. at, at freestanding house. That You know, there's these sort of factors that people say, oh, more bedrooms equal more money, for instance, but that's a classic example. Parking adds more value. It's more valuable than – but classic example of actually what was more valuable was the fact that it was a level block. Yeah. Yeah, it might be parking, but then you haven't got a courtyard or you can only get in a, mm. a Fiat rather than a, a four-wheel yeah. drive. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? You can base it on those sort of few metrics, but you've got to get on the ground. And I think it's, it's something you just learn from being in the suburb over time. I think it's that local knowledge, knowing that, you know, ultimately this is just the, one of the best streets. You know, it's got not mm. much traffic. It's quiet. It's accessibility. All the lifestyle benefits of that suburb are great. Um, it's a very, you know, it's got character overlays, you know, there's not many issues with privacy. It's got a good access to the school, you know, it's all the things you get to know these things. And, um, you also know the buyer pool, actually this property would suit a lot of buyer pools and people with a lot of money would love to live in this property. And it's got four good sized bedrooms and, you know, it's, um, well laid out and, you know, you can open planning, et cetera. I mean, the issues with overcapitalizing, I, I think, this is something I can't really comment on because I reckon I've overcapitalized pretty heavily. <laughs> um, you know, I think uh, we have a big property. I've created more space, some space I probably never need. Um, you know, maybe I've got a bit OTT on the landscaping, um, et cetera. So it, it is something really hard to do. I think it comes down to 
um, you know, just making sure if you can change things that are really big detractors of the property, like we did, we had a, lots of issues with our, the backyard was unusable, but now it's a pretty amazing backyard. Um, but, you know, we've got lots of stairs, you know, and so when we try to sell it one day, it'd be something we can't change, you know, someone's just mm. going to have to make that compromise um, and see the benefits of stairs as in views and all that sort of stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I think it is something you, if you've got a little terrace and things like that, then, um, yeah, it's just about being understanding. It's just, you know, not just uh, over, you know, spending $900,000 on making it a, a three-bed, two-bath terrace when you could probably do it for five or 600 you know, um, and still be get 90% of the benefit. Um, I do well, think Well, sometimes that, yeah. people have, you know, real quirks in terms of their own um, taste mm. and put real unusual, very bespoke design features into yeah. it that, aren't universally appealing yeah, yeah. or will date yeah you and know so that's something for those little things you know um you just got to weigh it up and we do something like an outdoor shower and it's like oh i'll just put an outdoor shower in here you know how, how much is that going to cost but once you add it all up you know the plumbing <laughs> and get the whole water there and create a little platform for it and you know it's like probably four grand it's like okay so for four <laughs> grand is that adding four grand to the house i'll probably say yeah i'm in this situation but because of the emotional sort of thing but you have to weigh it up each individual thing and go like, is this really, um, or am I just throwing money on it just because I'm in that spending zone? Like I'm on holiday, I'm just spending money. So I just, what's the matter if it's more money, it's more money. Um, because your life plan can change, you know, you can just say, look, the thing's going better than I was expected or something's changed and I have to sell or, um, and then that's when that really gets, um, you know, tested because then you're in the market and then you have to go to an auction and, um, you know, maybe you don't sell it. You just miss the, timing of the market by a couple of months like if you wanted to sell maybe it was best to sell in sydney you know in, in october or something you know what i mean but if you tried to sell in december maybe you didn't get anywhere near as much as you potentially could have a couple mm. of months earlier and so you can only miss timing very it's 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 a bit of luck to be honest and skill so that's the danger of overcapitalizing there is a huge amount of luck involved i mean yeah. i've I've had amazing timing and buying and selling other times i've had woeful timing and, and yeah. it comes down to your bigger picture and your plan and what whatever decision is, you know, doing for you in the long term. Even I on think the same every day, era- isn't it? Like you could literally have oh, two properties sometimes. on the same day um, and one vendor has amazing, like maybe it's an auction a few hours earlier than the other one or vice versa. Um, you know, people miss out of that one and then they go the next one, they go really hard because they don't want to be out of the market or mm. they went too hard on their last one and so and they've got a bit of buyer's remorse. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's so much luck in the sale. Yeah, people don't like to, um, particularly real estate agents, they don't like to talk about luck because they'd like to say it's how clever they are. You know, every area has its quirks, and I think that's what's important as well, that the, the analysis that it, in, in Roselle, for instance, the things that matter there are not going to matter somewhere else and things that matter somewhere else are not going to matter there. You know, so it's, it's got to be appropriate to an area. I think that um, one of the things that I see, this is an absolute classic thing to avoid in terms of overcapitalizing, and that is, and we, we referred it to it, little earlier it's basically bedrooms don't necessarily add value and quite often what i do see is people squeezing extra bedrooms in they're small and so they're not as functional and also they compromise on the actual living space in order to get the extra bedroom so they end up i see this a lot four bedroom homes with tiny living spaces it's like if you've got a four bedroom home you probably got at least two kids maybe three yeah and you want more living space yeah. that's why you're buying a four bedroom home and if your living space is constrained then you're not the right you haven't pitched it at the right audience the right market so it's very much um to make 
be very mindful of improving a property when you renovate, not in a way that your head might think, but actually making a better floor plan, bringing more light in, making it more usable, more more appealing, all that sort of thing. You know, it's really the bigger picture and you've got to sort of go out there and think not just of yourself and what your needs are, but actually what the needs are of the buying public because one day you want someone to buy it. You've got to be always thinking, who's my future buyer going to be and are they going to love it? And that's fundamentally it. This is why investors need to think like owner-occupiers, you know, because if you don't think like that, you're going to miss the boat. You're going to build something that might suit you, might not even suit you if you're trying to cram too many bedrooms and not enough living. but it might, you know, theoretically be be a good thing to do, but actually in practicality gets shunned by buyers because it just doesn't hit hit the uh, the right notes. Yeah. All right. So there you go. That's our first Q&A episode for 2022. We've got another one in the wings coming up not too far in the distant future. So keep the questions coming. And uh, thanks for joining us. Awesome. Good to chat, people. Talk soon. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.